Welcome to Black Sheep by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. This podcast celebrates those that don't follow the flock. Across the series, I'll be having conversations with some of the world's most notorious black sheep. We'll hear their stories told through the rules they've broken. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. As a photographer, you'd assume one would keep up with the latest technology. You'd always ensure that they serve the talent and you would network to the very best of your ability so that you can rise to the top. Meet our black sheep for this episode, Olivia Rose. Olivia was never supposed to be a photographer. In fact, she actively ran in the opposite direction from it growing up. She partly puts this aversion down to her tumultuous relationship with her father, who worked as a photographer throughout her childhood. Despite Rose's best efforts to avoid it, she says, in the end, photography chose her. It was the single course she got onto at the London College of Fashion. Yet, once there, she continued to rebel. At that time, digital was God, Olivia has said. Everyone was shooting skinny white girls on white studio backdrops in digital, and absolutely nothing about that resonated for me. She stuck to her guns and refused to move into the digital world, shooting on film and mainly in black and white. Fast forward a decade, and Olivia's obstinance has stuck with her. She recently stated, I don't give a fuck about fashion, yet she has got commissions from ID magazine, Fendi, Givenchy and Vogue. All she cares about, though, is the subject. A huge proportion of her subjects have been from the grime world. She's published a book called This Is Grime, featuring portraits of Skepta, Stormzy and Dizzy Rascal, and has since spoken about the difficulties surrounding cultural appropriation in the world of fashion and photography. Olivia says she loves people and she loves faces and nothing will get in the way of that. Hello, Olivia. Hello. Absolutely joyous for you to be here. So thank you. No worries. Um, Uh, Do you know what I loved the most about your intro? What? Was that you said a decade later, which technically makes me like, younger than I am so we'll just keep it more than a decade well you know maybe but I like that so yeah we'll keep it as a decade later all right that can stay I'd like to always start things off by asking if our guest thinks of themselves as a black sheep um yes yeah actually um and I think I'm quite proud of it Mm. too um I never I think the thing that I would hate to be described as more than anything is normal because that's just never, never in my life been a descriptor that felt, felt like me. Mm. Do you think in the world of photography, every photographer would like to think of themselves as a black sheep? No, I don't, no. And I think especially in creative worlds in general, there's, there tends to be like different tiers of people, I think. And I think often the most talented or the most, or the people who... um kind of produce the most interesting work are those kind of black sheep characters um people who just stubbornly do it their way or the highway um but I also think that there's kind of a middle band of people that would rather not go against the grain I mean that's probably the most lucrative way to um to be a photographer or or a creative to be someone who's more kind of malleable to other people's ideas and other people's kind of briefs so do you have black sheep photographers that you look up to um 
Oh, that's a really interesting question. But yeah, I, I think I do. I really love Roger Ballen, for example, who's a South African photographer who a lot of what he does, you know, the actual craft of the photography is very traditional, but his casting and the way that he will kind of build a set and he draws on the walls and, you know, he kind of takes all of these available objects, you know, so there's an authenticity to the portraits he's taking. Mm. But his casting is wild. You know, the way he kind of sets up a room, the way he poses someone is just really, it's really against the grain and actually in, in some ways is quite uncomfortable to look at. Um, and he always is, has been someone that I've kind of gone back and referenced with my work. Um, occasionally I will get sent briefs where, for example, the the entire mood board I've been sent is another photographer's work. <laughs> and uh, although that is obviously offensive to my ego, at the same time, I can't shoot like another photographer. Why would I do that? But there are photographers that will, you know, that if you give them an image to replicate, they will happily go away and have someone else build the lighting that way, build a set that way. And for me, I just don't understand what the joy is in that. I didn't bring anything to the table. I'm not an executor. I'm a person who likes to come up with an idea and and go and make it happen. Absolutely. And you've clearly created such a style that you have become known for. So I want to kind of travel through all of that and how you got there. And the way to start is with you telling me, please, the first rule that you've broken. Well, the first rule that I've broken, um, and I suppose it's the same with, with all of these rules, is one that I broke very much in the beginning of my career and now I'm more comfortable with, and that would be using my connections. So I dropped my my legals, my government surname. Um, and what was that? Morrison. But me dropping my surname was about moving away from um, being recognised for that Morrison name. My dad, Alistair Morrison, is also a photographer um, and took amazing and beautiful, like, magnum-style portraits of... He actually did a lot of the first sort of press shoots for for big names like Kate Winslet, you know, and, and uh, Liz Hurley, you know, like, back in the day, he was really making moves. And I think for me... It was partly that I never wanted anyone to be able to say, you got this because your dad's a photographer. That would ruin me. Um, but also partly because I, I just didn't want to be a photographer. I didn't want to be like my dad. I just wanted my own identity. And when you were growing up, looking at your dad being this successful photographer, what did that world, kind? Of, what were the connotations of that world for you? I grew up in, in, a, in a wildly creative household. Um, I mean, my dad wasn't around from when I was about five years old, but certainly I know that the photographs in the house um, and the artwork in my house were always really important to me, especially now I'm in therapy. I look back quite a lot and the things that I see are these visuals. My mum is an amazing drawer. Is drawer a word? Mm. She can draw amazingly. Um, <laughs> I like it. But yes. It so we had these, you know, these kind of framed images up on the wall that were things my mum had drawn. My brother's the same, although he's gone off and done something completely opposite to creative now. You know, he's also got a talent for that. My dad's photography was around. You know, I really grew up in a in a household where there was no nine to five. There was no regular routine. And why did you want to rebel to that? Um, 
I don't think I was rebelling against that. That's the thing that I have been drawn to, like a moth to a flame. I have never in my 34 years ever had a contract job. I've done, I've hustled here, there and everywhere. I've been freelance. I've done all sorts of things. But the idea of me signing myself up to a nine to five, five days a week is so alien in a way that it's very normal for other people. Sorry, I mean, why did you rebel against connecting with your family, considering that, you know, this freelance lifestyle was, you, you just said you were a moth to a flame, as clearly was your father yeah. and your mother? Um, well, I mean, with regards to photography itself, you know, it was this, I had this difficult relationship with my dad. We didn't see each other that much growing up. And I think he sort of became this symbol of, I mean, you know, like hashtag daddy issues here, but um, he became this symbol of something that I was trying to, to not be. And what was that? It's the fact that he and I have so many similarities. You know, I think there's something that comes along with photography when you're dealing with the aesthetic and especially when you're dealing with people that you know, creates an environment where you do meet attractive people, you do flirt with attractive people, you do end up in these intimate sitter and artist situations. So for me, it was kind of all of those different things, which were arguably like my best skills. I, I often say top of my CV is I love people mm. and I'm good with people. So, you know, all of these things that I'd inherited from my dad, I think I was... I was trying to deny those because that that had caused pain in in my life. And I wonder, and please tell me if I'm wrong, as a man back in the day that was shooting attractive women, is that what kind of made you want to run away from that world or not? No, I don't think so. I think I think for me it it wouldn't necessarily have been that. I mean, I know that I have definitely had my um kind of fair share of grievances with the with the whole idea of maleness masculinity and this kind of power power balance that has always been kind of wrong especially in fashion photography where you know models get younger and younger and clothes get sheerer and sheerer <laughs> you yeah. know um and actually there is something that I can understand to be very uncomfortable about that sort of situation but I think for me really it was it was just if that's who dad is I'm going to be something else I knew I was going to be a creative I couldn't have been anything else that that was so obvious to me and I went to you know I went to a good private school I'm well educated person you know they were up in arms when it got to 18 and I'm saying I want to go to art school mm. you know no you can go to Oxford or Cambridge and you can be a lawyer or a doctor you know this was this was what was around me and I'm lucky enough that, yeah, I, f I do feel like I could have done that. So I had kind of all of the support and privilege to be able to turn around and say, no, I'm going to be the black sheep here. There were two girls in my whole year, me and my friend Annie, who went off to art school. Everyone else was like, you know, we, we barely got any support, actually, from our school for doing that because they were so flabbergasted like why would you go to art school when you could go and have a proper job people mm. people still think that so you turned up at the London College of Fashion and what did you intend to do originally um well I actually started at Central St Martins I did a foundation course there 
And that, for anyone who doesn't know, is a course that um, it kind of gives you an overview of lots of different mediums to work in. So you do some sculpture, you do some fine art. There are lots of different pathways to go down. And as a sort of general creative, I was always really interested in textiles and fine art Mm. and sculpture. But (laughs) at the end of this one year foundation, I found myself plonked right onto a photo media pathway so obviously they had seen something in the photographic work I was doing that I was still definitely trying to deny and at that point had you dropped your surname yes right from the moment I went to university you know I think I think people you know it's one of those opportunities in life when you can have a rebrand and for me I was like do you know what I'm gonna and I think actually probably something to do with me coming into adulthood or womanhood um womanhood what do I sound like I love the word womanhood (laughs) I love it um but yeah I think I think it was you know about about claiming my own identity and trying to not let that be affected by by my childhood and my upbringing but then that was different when you got into your photography course yeah right yeah and and ultimately I so I'd applied for lots of different BAs um and they were all like fantastically interesting. And then there was kind of like this one right at the end of the the list of things that I was going to go for. And I was like, oh, well, I'll put fashion photography down because that wouldn't be that bad if, you know, but I know that it's not going to get to that because I was a, a righteous boffin at school, you know. And so I've kind of got this, I guess I had a bit of a God complex going on. <laughs> like, there's no way I won't get into all of my top choices. And bam. And it was really hard for me. But bam, I got into nothing. The only course that bloody accepted me was fucking fashion photography and I was like this is dire like will I ever get away from this yeah um but I was very lucky that and and actually do you know what in my first year I really did try and get away I applied to London College of Communication to be a journalist because I thought if I can't really do what I want with the art then the only other thing I loved was words and writing yeah so I was like fuck it I'm gonna change course and Um, to get onto that course you did say who your dad Yes, was right. Uh, so actually, at at the interview for fashion photography BA, there was a tutor. Um, may he rest in peace. Actually, Ed Barber, who was looking through my my work that I'd made on my foundation course, and I'd done this. Which, just as an aside, when I look back at it now, I'm shocked at how how emotionally open I was being mm. as a as a younger person. But I'd made this installation out of keys that were attached to little manila um, travel tags on which I'd printed um, all of my childhood photographs. So it was me and my brother and my dad, you know, images that we appeared together in, kind of a comment on being a lock and key child. And I'm actually explaining this, you know, probably in some quite horrendous psychological detail because God knows what I was saying when I was 18, to Ed Barber when he suddenly piped up and said, So is that your dad? Yeah. Is his name Alistair Morrison? Yeah. I taught him. Oh, good. Okay. And so I kind of came out of that interview knowing I was going to get onto that course. And, and knowing... how did that make you feel, knowing that there was that like connection that shit. you were running away from? Like yeah. shit. Why because, do you think that is? Because because it was my worst fear. I was like, oh my God, they've only... The only course I got accepted onto. So I'm also dealing with, oh, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. But the only one that wants me, they only want me because he knew my dad. And... I think that was something that really, really stuck with me when I was kind of going through my first year. And why do you think there is such a sense of shame around family connection? 
I don't know, but if I kind of muse on it, I think ultimately it's because everyone wants to be recognised as an individual in their own right. And I think what is very interesting, now I'm much older, you know, now I'm a now I'm a fully fledged adult woman, um, is that very recently I looked at my dad's website and I started pulling some images off that I, I actually didn't feel like I'd seen before. But but no doubt they filtered into my psyche at some point, you know, over the years. And I spent I started to kind of match the images together with some that I had taken. And after about an hour, and I was actually kind of shaking. The adrenaline in me was so strong when I was doing this. After about an hour, I'd matched about 20 images. Like, it's pretty uncanny. I'll show you once we finish. You know, like the pairs that you can make that for me are like almost like proof of a genetic eye, which, I mean, I don't know about the science, but there's something very striking about that for me. And how does that make you feel, considering you've just said so eloquently how you spent so much time running away to actually be like, I can't run away because he is my dad. Do you know, I think it's I think it's the right moment for me in my life to have made that realisation. And I think probably, you know, that's kind of how how the world and, and the psyche works in a way, isn't it? You know, when when you're ready to consolidate those things they get thrown back in your face. And I think now I'm at a place where I do feel like I've built my career individually of my dad. And so actually I'm much more comfortable saying thank you so much for the gift that you've given me because that is, you know, that is the legacy that I've received from from my dad. And I think the one thing that I would always have said, regardless of, of my feelings towards our relationship, is that, he is an amazing photographer and and that you can't deny you know (laughs) and so I do I feel grateful now and and actually in many ways it's kind of been the bringing back together of me and my dad so it's a it's an interesting it's a weird interesting creative family thing absolutely and kind of the parallel story that's going on through art at the same time as your kind of personal journey yeah it's quite yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, what when I was saying about these matching images, I think what is what is almost so incredible about it is that we have we have this very similar style of shooting, but our subjects could not be yeah. more different. I was going to ask that yeah. I think in conjunction to the question I asked right at the start, which is this kind of voyeuristic element. Yeah. Was that a conscious decision then from you to say, I don't want to shoot anywhere like the people that you've shot no I don't think so because I think I think as a photographer you just naturally um are drawn to what attracts you visually Mm. I suppose and I suppose that that is the sort of very basic starting point for for how people start to choose who they're going to approach and you know what images start to resonate the most with them um, I want to really explore the people that you've shot. Yeah. But I, I'm scared that that's um, leaning onto a, a rule that we're not yet at. Okay. So in my very OCD way, I'd like to stick onto this rule a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, so once you were going through uh, the London College of Fashion, where did you go next? What was kind of that journey like for you without your surname? After university. Mm. Um, so when I finished university, I think 
I think because of because of everything we've mentioned, I sort of left with this feeling that, yeah, I might have done this fashion photography course, but I knew very distinctly that I didn't care about the fashion. Um, and when I say I don't give a fuck about fashion, I think it's funny because when I when that sort of came out even in a previous interview, I was a little bit worried that I'd sort of never work again. Um, but I think when you give that some context, you know, fashion was never for me. It never fitted me. I'm plus size, you know, so I couldn't wear this fashion that everyone spoke about. So I didn't give a fuck about it. Mm. You know, like give me someone with style. And that's what I always cared about, the subject and someone with style. And what does style mean for you? Um, Someone who puts themselves together well. You know, like I think there are so many different genres of style you know you you don't have to be fixed to what is fashionable to have a look you know even if your look is like a bit bag lady you know and everyone has that friend it's probably me to it's be probably me you. i thought you were implying it was me <laughs> but seven seven bags sitting around my feet <laughs> no do you know it's you know like for example my hair which is actually up today but i normally you know that's kind of like my crowning glory and and i always look like i've been dragged through a hedge backwards and I don't care if that's professional or not professional. That's my hair, on my head, that's how I'm wearing it. You know, and I think it's it's having a confidence in in sort of what you're putting together. You don't have to be the most beautiful. You don't have to be, and I should say traditionally beautiful because beauty is subjective. But, you know, I think for me, an interesting person is a person who you wonder why they've put that brooch mm. in that place on their jacket or turned their jeans up like that do you think in today's like instagram saturated image saturated world it's quite hard for us to really find out what our style is 100 percent. you know it's like anything it's like you know i don't know if you've been recently into an american supermarket but if you go to the cereal aisle there is so much choice was do you know what it's the same as if you go on netflix there is so much choice that that by the time you've tried to choose something you're bored of of trying to make that decision and I think it's the same with style and definitely with subculture so much of that is lost now because we have too I say too much but I'm in two minds about it but we have too much access to everything you know you can be a mod on Monday a goth on Tuesday a surfer on Wednesday and a bag lady on on Saturday you know and is that part of the reason why you decided not to go digital um well, I think actually my decision to not go digital was made quite quite a long time before social media became the ex- kind of explosion that it is now. I remember when I was first at university, when I'd first moved into um, like a house with my mates, that's when Facebook started. So really I was making that decision kind of before the world became a place where everyone's phone was a camera. It was only a decade ago, I'm apparently. Mental, no. right? <laughs> yeah, just, it was only five years ago. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think for me, it was just the fact that, you know, everyone was just so obsessed with digital. Why were they obsessed with it? Because it was new. And, okay, new things are exciting, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're better. And I think the microwave is a really good example of that, you know, like ruined so much about eating culture you know and the idea of spending time on your food which is your life source that's how I feel about digital Mm. you know just because it's available doesn't mean that it's better and what frustrates me so much now is when I'm talking to clients and they speak to me as if 
how could I possibly know that those pictures were exposed? And I'm like, okay, so here's a little history lesson. 20 years ago, digital didn't exist. Before that, for hundreds of years, people shot on film. How do I know that I've exposed it? Because I have 10 years experience doing this. And I know the six roles that I fucked up. And I know exactly when it happened. Yeah. My six blank roles that all happened at once when I was trying to shoot Jeremy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I find that really frustrating. This, like, lack of trust in in a medium that is actually more trustworthy than digital. I can't lose a hard drive. My memory card can't wipe itself. If I have no battery, my camera will still work. Good old mechanical bad boy that it is, you know. So I, I actually dropped I dropped my camera in the water in Jamaica once. Hour in the sun, we're back up and running. Yeah. Imagine doing that with your digital SLR. You're fucked. Dead. You're you literally fucked. Ten bags so. of rice. Exactly. Um, I like that we're kind of about to lean into geeky photography uh, jargon, which is actually right up my street. <laughs> so um, please, Olivia, can you throw us into the second rule that you have broken? Yes, my second rule, photographers, brace yourselves because you're really not going to like this. Um, <laughs> they tell you that you mustn't shoot group portraits on a 90mm lens on a medium format camera, but that is maybe my favourite way of shooting groups. So, I mean, I think it's it's one of those things, actually, that probably to a lot of people that means absolutely nothing. But um, in my world, and especially when I've got uh, good assistants around me, they are flabbergasted. Like, are you sure you want the 90? Yeah, I'm sure I want the 90. And just a, a bit of a, a novice, yep. um, what, why is this so groundbreaking? <laughs> groundbreaking, I like that. <laughs> um, well, because a 90mm lens has less of kind of a, a focal range. So if I was shooting on a 50mm lens, for example, I get a, a wider image. So when I look through my camera, I'd be able to fit five people in the same frame stood at the same distance away from them. In a 90mm lens, I'd probably be focusing on two of the people in that group of five. So one of the things I like to do is take groups, and and I definitely got inspiration from Richard Avedon, um, who used to shoot groups in more than one frame. So instead of even turning my camera to landscape, I like to keep it portrait and if there's 10 of you I kind of do this weird thing where I shoot and shuffle shoot <laughs> and shuffle so yeah it, you do get a group shot at the end but you have those key lines in between and there's some you know there's some tension that that brings breaking the shot up and what kind of drove you to do that oh I mean in in the beginning just I didn't know how to do anything else and I didn't know that I wasn't meant to use a 90mm lens um, and then kind of the more I think actually when when you're a person like me who who gives so, so I, I give no shits about the technology for me, like really always photography was about subject first. It was about the people that I got to interact with and shoot. But I grew up and I taught myself photography on mistakes it would be like if you taught yourself to drive and then went to do a a, a driving test. You yeah. know, they'd fail you because you're you're even if you were a perfect driver because your technique was all crazy. You know, and I think that's how I've taught myself to shoot. Is 
you know, I make lots of mistakes. There were lots of things that I was sort of never interested in learning, in kind of pushing myself in. And so I was, I've been quite stubborn to a style of shooting, actually. And does that mean when you were at um, the London College of Fashion, did you almost kind of put your hands over your ears so that you didn't learn what they were trying to teach you? Well, actually, do you know what? Let me not uh, diss London College of Fashion. But um, <laughs> Go no, on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what's interesting is when you go and do a fashion photography course like I did, there's no, there wasn't very much technical teaching and... So definitely for my confidence as a person who wasn't quite sure she wanted to be a photographer, definitely didn't like fashion um, and all of the things we've kind of talked about so far combined, I was very, very insecure in that first year of university because a lot of the other kids who were there with me had come with this technical knowledge and I always felt very, I don't know what the word is, insecure I suppose you know I felt very insecure about my lack of knowledge and I've got a bit of a psychological block that instead of just going away and learning that I was like don't need it don't need it I'm gonna do something else you know if you're all absolutely concerned with technology I will be absolutely concerned with making people feel the best that they can feel and you know making sure that even though my lighting might not be perfect and and I might not be able to <clears throat> create a giant studio setup with 10 grand's worth of equipment. I know that I can make even the grumpiest motherfucker <laughs> smile for a picture. <laughs> yeah. And so when you came out of um, university, I don't know how it works as a photographer, but I'm assuming that people normally assist. Yes, people do normally assist, but I was never going to assist. Because you weren't, like, digitally inclined? Well, Is yeah, that why? I mean, I, I would have been an absolutely shockingly bad assistant. I mean, I still would, that much I can tell you. And <clears throat> absolutely God bless the wonderful assistants that I have accumulated over the years because... I think that's what I've realised is that ultimately you just need to play to your strengths. Like I was never going to go and be an assistant partly because of my my ego. Like that, I, w- I wasn't the kind of photographer that that wanted to make my extra money that way. It was almost like I needed something completely different to be making my money so that I could pour all of that back into my personal work. Everything felt like personal work when I left um, university. Um and yeah, part, partly because I just would have been the world's shittest assistant. Does that mean then that you missed out on work, not just as an assistant, but in your own right too, because of your um, absolute obsession with not going digital? Um, yes, definitely over the years, without a shadow of a doubt, that has that's kind of been this, it's almost been this like overhanging cloud in my whole career. and And I think a lot of that is because just like lots of other people, you know, coming up, I was so concerned about what other people were thinking of me or or thinking about my techniques. And I think it, it it's very difficult. You've got to reach a point where you feel comfortable to stand behind your own work without anyone else saying it's good and saying, this is good, you know. And so at that time, I had this this constant buzz in my ear of people, you know, older photographers, um, people I respected saying to me, you know, yeah, it's, you know, it's cute that you're using film, but, you know, maybe you want to actually just get a digital camera because, you know, like imagine all the money you'll save on film and, you know, you can just go out and do this job and that job. 
And I just, honestly, my response always, even though I don't think I ever really felt it until recently, was no, I can do this. You know, because it was like the more people told me I couldn't, the more I was like, yeah, fucking can. So who took their first kind of punt on you? Um, I think my first published work was with ID Magazine, which is, you know, funnily enough, a very prestigious magazine to to kind of get your first work in. They wanted to publish some pictures that I'd taken in Jamaica, in Kingston. Um, And I think when that worked, it was kind of the first time that I was like, oh. And I suddenly realised that I had all of these negatives, all of these piles of pictures, these bodies of work that I was, you know, I was giving myself self-directed projects. I'd say, this is your title. You'll do it in a month. You know, you'll have an edit of 10. And and I was like, hold on, what what's the point of this if I'm not showing anyone? And I think therein came the sort of next stage of my career, which was, okay, how do we do this? How do we make people trust me? How do we you know, get to a place where where me not shooting digitally isn't going to be a problem. Um, and I think the reality of that is that, that it's hard and a long road, much longer. I'm sure I could have sped up my career path um, were I willing to, to at least have a digital operator on set. Mm. Um, but I'm not mad at that. I think I needed to take this long to get where I've got to. Because I really do feel like I'm in a place now where I can stand behind a piece of work and say, that's good. That's fucking good. And how did that kind of self-validation develop? Therapy, (laughs) twice a week. Um, Therapy. Everyone go to therapy. If you're not going to therapy, you're mad. Those are the mad ones. (laughs) Perhaps my therapist would say it's not the fact that I went to therapy. It's the fact that I made the decision that that was something that I wanted to do. Because at that moment, I realised that I was being affected by so many things, like we all are, from my childhood and my relationship to photography and to my dad and to creativity, which which is often so bad for your mental health. It keeps you up till five in the morning because when the idea's there... You can't, how can you just sleep? It won't come back in the morning, you know, and that is true. And I think I just got myself into, and, and like I said, there was there was really no example of nine to five in my life. And so things that people um, take for granted as like a daily routine and as basic as, and this is really me sharing my soul here, but as basic as wake up, brush your teeth, have breakfast, have a cup of tea, go to work, you know, I had never had that in my morning. So I, over the years, got myself into, okay, wake up when? Brush my teeth or or start emails. Oh, I'm not seeing anyone for a while. So the shower would happen at five before I, you know, my, my day was very confused. And as humans, we need a sense of routine, a sense of, you know, self-care and not just giving, I was really giving my everything in my pajamas mm. all day to my work I would wake up and I would sit sit at a computer and I found myself a a lot of times falling asleep at that computer at the end of the day and because you were self-motivating and being freelance um did you find that off button difficult I think I still really do find the off button difficult and I think that's 
that's always probably going to be one of my um, strengths and one of my weaknesses. Because as far as I'm concerned, go hard or go home. You know, like I don't ever want to engage in a project, no matter how much or little money is attached to it, that I'm not giving 100% to. And in reality, I give 135%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I think the moment where you can sort of switch off and recoup is so important. And I think actually when you're younger, the reason you don't know that is because you've not experienced the physicality of tiredness. Takes until your 30s, <laughs> you know, and then suddenly you realise, okay, if I'm up till six in the morning and then trying to go somewhere at nine, I'm absolutely shattered, you know. So does that mean now that you have built this career for yourself, you are um, changing that in terms of what your routine is? Yes. And, you know, really simple things like one of my best friends, I call her my wife, (laughs) Amber. um, You know, she used to have to send me a message in the evening and say, clean your teeth, wash your face, go to bed. What a lovely friend. I know, what a lovely friend. Um, And what a simple message. Yeah. But that really helped me. Because it meant, you know, that she would do it when she was going to bed, which was probably a little bit earlier than I was going to bed because I tend to work late and wake late. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. work, work late, late, and, late and wait late. Totally. Oh, that's a new yeah, phrase. Yeah. yeah, work late, wait late. Um, <laughs> Should come with a warning, a health warning. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, just, just the idea that then I knew, okay, I should start winding down now. Um And I think the other thing that has been really crucial for me is when you're self-employed and when you've always been self-employed, I think it's really easy. I mean, a a lot of the time people undermine my work, you know, like it's not a proper job. Oh, God, I wish I was you and I got to stay at home all day. And, And do you know what? There are perks and benefits and I will not, you know, disagree with that. But it is really hard to self-manage and to and to keep that routine going. And I think the thing that I struggled with the most was if there was ever a moment I wasn't working, I felt lazy and I felt like almost worthless, you know, because that's been such a driving force. It's such a big part of my identity now. Um, and so, you know, little things like this, <clears throat> my birthday's Christmas Eve and this Christmas I took myself to Miami and... I didn't really want to see Miami, if I'm honest. It was just a place I could be where there were some decent flights, you know, decent flight prices to have 10 days to myself, you know, and actually stop. And I cannot remember Mm. in the last decade another time when I've done that. Every other holiday I've been desperate for the Wi-Fi, you know, sat in that one corner of the villa with my friends, unable to engage because, because I've... I'm terrified that I'm being lazy by taking a break. We're now part or we're now becoming aware of this kind of millennial burnout culture. Do you think do you think you've had a I'm not saying you're responsible for the culture, <laughs> but this kind of rhetoric of you have to work like from morning to night and you can't give up and, and in a way your mental health is at jeopardy. But as a consequence, you're now really in demand. So would you say, yeah, I'm glad I, I, I I'm assuming you did experience burnout? Uh, yeah, I definitely did experience burnout. Um, and I'm definitely not glad that I experienced it because it's horrendous and I think a lot of people do go through it and and it is not a healthy 
mentally or physically it's not a healthy way to to treat yourself however until we collectively the creative industries work out a way to pay minimum wage to not have people shooting for free to not take the absolute piss out of young digital photographers who don't understand their worth because they don't see how much money it costs. You know, for me, I know every time I click the camera, it's about three quid, you know, three or five quid. So I'm going to be careful for them. They they wonder what they can charge people because oh, it's just my time, isn't it? You know, and until we can stop taking the piss out of everyone, until we can stop this this huge overarching, you know, five or 10 photographers that get every campaign that clean up all the money, you know, it's just like every other industry. Austerity exists within mm. photography, you know, until we can change that, then, then, and I hate to say this because I don't recommend it, but you're going to have to hustle or you're not going to make it. Mm. And what, how did burnout manifest for you? So for me, burnout was, was actually when I was creating This Is Grime, which is ironically the last time, and that was in 2016. So that was the last time I had another job. It was really the final straw for me. I was working, like at, at times I was working like 22 hours a day or something absolutely outrageous. I lost quite a lot of weight. I had really bad stomach issues, which, you know, I, I was at the time like completely convinced. And I had about three of my friends completely convinced that it must be pancreatic cancer. Ultimately, the doctors came back and they said, yeah, you know, like you're, you're kind of fine. Like really it's stress. And I realized then that, you know, I was taking on night shifts as a picture researcher at, at various magazines and newspapers. So I would be working from, you know, maybe I'd start at eight and work until four in the morning or I'd start at 11 p.m. if it was a overnight for American shift, um, leave at six in the morning. The next day I'd be shooting someone in Milton Keynes, you know. The book had to go on. And and that was a decision that I'd made for myself. I think I, think I kind of knew that that was going to be the final push that I that I do this book and then try and break free from my other my other work um but yeah I mean it was at the end of that I often say to people when this is grime came out I felt like I'd given birth and I had the worst postnatal mm. depression I've ever had in my life ever it was the biggest most outrageous letdown you know, of anything I've ever done. That's interesting. And, and what did it make you um, think about success or that word of success? Because I'm assuming that book was the most, inverted the commas here, successful thing that you've done. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's it, what you're asking me is a really complicated question that I don't think I've unraveled myself. But from what I know of me, I'm a person who... By the time everyone else is saying to me, oh my God, congratulations, this book is amazing. Well, I had sent that to print two months ago and I'm now stressed about something else. Yeah. So it's kind of like finding, <clears throat> and this is something I'm still working on every day, is finding a moment to stop, look at everything I've mm. done and say, do you know what, mate? You're all right, you, mm. you know? And I still find that really hard. I find it really hard when people give me compliments you know, now it's, there's kind of this funny thing that happens every now and again that, that a young person will come running up to me in the street. Oh my God, are you Olivia Rose? And I'm like, 
the fuck? You know, my my natural instinct is to tell them to go and get a fucking life if you know who I am. <laughs> I'm not, you know. But <clears throat> but then I see that there are people, and I just recently had an intern, a girl called Kayla King, come and work with me for six weeks. And to see... I feel really emotional. Um, to see that I've inspired someone else, like that is actually what I do all of this for. Mm. So whether or not I can take the compliment, if someone else feels like they can have a career in what they love to do because they've watched me be honest about how hard it was, mm. about how little I still know, I still can't work my way around a, a photographic studio and young photographers should hear that from my voice because you don't fucking need to. That's a different way of shooting. You want to be that person? Go and learn it. Mm. You don't? Just stick to the people. Like, learn how to be really good with them, you know, and you can still create something of your own. We spoke really briefly before about this kind of Instagram-saturated world. You've really found your mark with not going digital. How can other people stand out? Ooh, good question. How can other people stand out? For me, I think the kind of ins and outs of how you're going to make yourself stand out, I, I couldn't possibly begin to predict. But the one thing I will say that will always put you in the best position is to find your own style. Don't emulate someone else's style. Do you know what I think? The thing that I get asked the most from kids who, um, like, I want to say cold DM, like a cold call, <laughs> yeah, you know, slide into my DMs <laughs> on Instagram, is what camera do you use? And always my response is you're asking the wrong question. Yeah. Because if you and I took exactly the same picture with the same lights of the same person on the same camera right now, they would look different. So what it sounds like you're saying is tap into your own creativity yeah. and that's what's going to be unique. A hundred percent. And I think I think it's really hard nowadays. I, I'm also a person who a lot of my references, a lot of the people and the photographers and the artists that I draw inspiration from, you know, are a long time dead and gone, you know. I try not to look at what my peers are doing because I think you find that you get a sort of homogenous output. It's a bit like, um, you know, with catwalk shows and when fashion comes out next season, somehow everyone's picked pineapple prints or, you know, there's a way of of things filtering into our consciousness. So I do try and stay away from the work of my peers and kind of flicking through current magazines just because I think if you reject what's happening around you, you're more likely to find what's you and not just be trying to keep up with the Joneses. Olivia, will you tell me, please, the final rule that you've broken? So the final rule I have broken every time I've ever shot somebody famous is pamper the talent. Um fuck off I was lucky that I grew up with a photographer for a dad and a prop stylist for a mum because I sort of assisted on a not on my dad's shoots but on my mum certainly you know I grew up around sort of celebrity and it really never impressed me I'm impressed by personality and talent and the way a person is and often that does go hand in hand with with a celebrated popular person but not always and 
the one thing I just can't tolerate is when people try and set up a, a hierarchy on set. Do you um, have different kind of tools you'd use if you're greeted with ego? Yeah. I often say that if someone's giving me diva, I'll, I'll go along with it. I will say that when someone is a diva on set, for me, it's like, let's be divas then. It's like, don't fan the flames, just join the fire, you know? Yeah. If they're going to be a diva, I will literally be like, oh, we're being divas today. Like, someone bring the champagne, you know? Like, you just have to catch people off guard. And sometimes the best way to do that is if, if I really feel ego when I walk into a studio, I don't go and say hello. Mm. Because trust me, they will come and introduce themselves in the end, you know? I've mm. been on a few shoots and I've noticed that the photographer is often the diva oh my god I have heard this but do you know what's so interesting is that I very rarely get to see other photographers yeah, work yeah of course makeup artists stylists you know talent or, uh, journalists I see that all the time but what I think one of the nicest compliments I've ever received about my style of shooting um, is that I always appear calm and in control <clears throat> when in reality you know oftentimes inside I'm freaking out that actually we don't have enough light or does that backdrop look right you know like there's always this internal struggle going on but for my game face to be good enough that I'm convincing everyone around me that I am in control I think was just a really you know that that was a compliment that I was like mm, I like that but yeah I mean I've I mean I think we've all heard stories of of how much ego a photographer can bring to set and I do like to think that in a lot of ways, like, I, you know, if that's if that's a stereotype of photographers, I'm the black sheep to that. Yeah. Because if anything, I come on set with self-deprecation. I am the girl who comes in, trips over her camera bag, a boob falls out. <laughs> that's a really good way to break the ice. You know, like <laughs> I'm just this lovable idiot who doesn't really know what she's doing and one thing I that always happens is I forget to take my dark slide out in in the first moment of shooting so often one of my first lines to my subject is oh oh maybe I should learn how to use the camera if I haven't forgotten to take the dark slide out I've normally forgotten to turn it on so <laughs> those are two basics that I still haven't nailed but is so. that a slight tactic from you to in order to get the subject to chill and and join you no that's real those things are real um I do have things that I say now that you know that kind of come up in a lot of shoots because they succinctly and accurately get a message over to someone you know like things like feels weird looks good for a picture you know because that's something that resonates with people like I can tell when somebody feels awkward when I've said oh put your arm over your, you know especially boys put your arm over your head and look this way and they're like the fuck do I look like you know and sometimes it's just about explaining and I've done this a few times on set, you know, I, I explain I'm not here to set you up, you know, if you aren't happy with the pictures, if everyone thinks that that you look ugly or horrendous, that's going to be my fault. So I'm not here to set you yeah. up. I'm here to make you look fucking amazing. So what do you think drove you then to the grime scene? I ended up in the position of, of shooting the book because my personal work, the things that I had focused on even before I was a published photographer, were always race and masculinity. That was something that started really because of an aesthetic preference, you know. That was the kind of people that my eye was drawn to. And I think now, as a middle-class white woman within 
the sort of worlds that I was working, I've had to reflect on on whether my intentions were right to start <laughs> with and how that's changed over my career. I was going to ask you about that. I don't know. Do you know about Luke Willis-Thompson? No. So he won the Turner Prize. Ah, oh, yes, yeah, I know exactly in 2018. Yeah. And he, he got a lot of criticism. Yeah. Um, he had a lot of people um, really resisting the fact that he won the prize because they said black pain is not for profit. Yeah. And just hearing you say that really kind of resonates with that whole discussion. So yeah. I wondered what you thought about that and whether you think that non-black creatives should or shouldn't profit from telling those stories. So I... It it is really complicated, but in other ways it is, forgive the pun, very black and white. And I think what is integral, and this is what you can't always know just by looking at someone's work, is your intention. And I think that ultimately when people are creating work that sparks conversation, that can make this world a bit more progressive, and bring people and their opinions and understandings of each other together through that conversation, then perhaps there's an argument to say that 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 is a good thing. And within your book, This Is Grime, what was the conversation that you were wanting to start? Um, I think... I think one of the things that was really important to Hattie Collins and I, Hattie wrote the book, and Hattie was, I mean, she's also a a white middle-class woman, um, but she was so well ingratiated into the scene. You know, she'd lived with Skepta. She'd, you know, she has literally been around since the scene's been around and and they all hold her in very high esteem as someone who, you know, her and Chantelle Fiddy were the the two journalists who um, gave them a platform. Um, me on the other hand, I was just this, this girl that sort of came in and, you know, wanted to take the pictures. I, you know, I didn't absolutely love grime. I didn't really know the hierarchy, didn't really know who anyone was. But, um, but what I will say is that despite my, my sort of post-publishing depression of what the fuck have I done was it right for me to do this am I horrendously problematic you know and and all of those feelings what has happened on the other side of it is that I've made friends for life and I have such a deep respect for the humans that allowed me to take their pictures to be part of this book that has opened new doors for me. (laughs) And what I can do, I can't go back and not shoot This Is Grime again, but what I can do is give those people not just the respect they deserve, but if I am ever, because of my white privilege, in a position where I can either turn something down because someone else is is a better fit or bring someone through with me, then that's what I've made it my aim to do. So when you look at the big brands now that are really making sure... Well, in a way, I guess I'm asking you about tokenism. Yeah. It's become fashionable, right? Yeah. Grime culture's become fashionable. It was a subculture. Yeah. What do you think of that? And do you ever say no to things? I think that if people don't have the right intentions, then it is deplorable. It is disgusting. 
is what it is. And I think that ultimately we have to respect people's opinions when we've made mistakes, even if we are big brands, even if we think we haven't done something disgusting. It's all well and good somebody saying, you know, oh, that's not what we meant. Well, you've offended a lot of people and you can't you can't silence those people. And do you think fashion and photography is changing in terms of being more inclusive? Yeah, I mean, slowly but surely, I do think it's changing. I mean, th- there are things that help, um, you know, and unfortunately, because because it is gross, one of the things that helps is this moment where things become fashionable. And if people can capitalise on that, then I'm all for it. Um, and that, what it does is it kind of brings through other creatives, it brings through women, it brings through people of colour, it brings through people that might not ordinarily have got a look in because that's what, what people are actually actively searching for. Mm. I wish that they could do it for other reasons than it's fashionable right now. I wish people were doing it because they genuinely wanted to see positive change in the world because I think that's that's what I really want. And that's why, yes, you know, I, I have and I and I will turn down jobs. There are jobs that are not for me and that is something that I don't think I realised before I shot the book. And now, you know, if somebody asked me, and I have been asked, you know, will you shoot the black female experience? <laughs> well, you know, I could, but I almost certainly guarantee that there's a black female photographer out there that could do it better than I could, you know. That project is not for me. If there's a project that makes sense, that makes sense that I can, I like to say it's like bridging a gap. It's like straddling between two worlds. And for example, I was at an ad agency and I was sat in a room full of people and we were talking about underprivileged youth in London. And somebody said something along the lines of, oh, we could just get the kids and make them dance, you know? And it just hit me like, what the fuck are we talking about? You know, look around in this room. We are all middle to upper class white people trying to talk about a group of people that that we don't understand, you know, and, and those situations need to stop. We need to stop making up other people's narratives. Do you know how you solve that problem? Bring in someone who does understand. You know, even if they aren't necessarily the photographer, you have to have the right people researching the right people there to to temper your enthusiasm and to and to call you out on things and I think if there's if there's one thing and again I have to preface this with the fact that my white privilege allows me to do this in certain situations because of the color of my skin when I get ranty people aren't threatened by me which is outrageous but is true if I can be the person who is very vocal about something and is listened to because of the sad fact of this world, then I have to speak up. That sounds great and a perfect place for us to move on to the one rule that you will never break. Really simple rule, but I don't think people think about it enough. And it is respect and be empathetic to everyone you meet. Everyone you meet. No matter, no matter whether they're the, the runner, the lowliest person on the shoot or, you know, the talent that walks in, you have to respect that people have their own shit going on. They have their own insecurities. You know, they're just as worried as you are about something that they're about to do. And I think it's so easy to forget. It's so easy for us to just be so consumed in our own, in our own worlds 
that that's kind of all that matters to us. Do you think you've ever been disrespectful? Yes, definitely. Definitely. And I think the most important thing is that you keep listening. You listen with an empathetic ear and you take in the criticism around you. I actually had a lady very vocally disagree with one of the um, the talks I'd done for a publication and it's something that's online. And, you know, I had a few people around me saying to me, um, you know, she, she was a person of colour and she was upset with the way that I'd spoken about my journey. And I had a few people around me say to me that, you know, I didn't need to reply to that. She's just angry woman, you know, but but I was like, hold on, if I just say she's an angry woman and I don't reply, then I am being the person she's saying I am. And although my natural reaction was to to do that white defensive thing, I'm not racist, I'm, you know, I had to really slow myself down and approach my response in a way that explained I'm listening. I really appreciate that you give me these comments because I'm, I'm on the side of equality and and us being able to just have a world that that doesn't see things in in this way but while we are still here I have to be a person who stands up to my mistakes as well and I think part of what she was saying to me was you know do I not realize how much awful stuff I've said in the past in interviews and and I have and I have and I will stand up and say that I mean, I could ask all of those people to take those interviews down. Mm. But then who am I? I'm a person who's pretending that I arrived at this point I'm at, now I'm 34, when I didn't. I've done a lot of unlearning, you know, and I think it's so crucial that we all do. You know, you have to you have to make mistakes and you have to learn from them. So I know right at the top we um spoke about how your kind of journey through photography almost matches your personal relationship with your dad and in a weird way hearing you say that just makes me think you've gone down this kind of non-digital route where you can't delete and you're so sticking by that in your own narrative it's like a total honesty where where you're just you're not airbrushing it you're not filtering it you're just saying this is me and I'm learning on my journey and so yeah thank you so much for being so honest throughout this whole discussion what a wonderful black sheet you are in the world of photography so thanks thank you